This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres. On this episode of 15-Minute History, we're going to be talking about colonial and post-colonial South Asia. Today's guest is Snehal Shingavi, who is in the Department of English here at the University of Texas at Austin, where he works on the literature of India and Pakistan in the 20th and 21st centuries. Welcome, Dr. Shingavi. Thanks for having me. Before we start off, maybe you could give us a brief history of European imperialism in South Asia so that we can sort of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about in the 20th century. So Asia is always an important place for Europe. Um, it's been interested for at least 500 years um, in commerce, in um, resources, in its mineral wealth, and also in its people. Um, and over the course of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, began to consolidate its naval basically routes into Asia, all of which centered on India being a primary place where the ships would stop and either trade or refuel, if you will. Um, by about the middle of the 19th century, the British East India Company has acquired enough um, political and economic power that it they actually have to begin to fight some pretty substantial military campaigns, um, the largest of which was the 1857 uh what is called in India anyway, the War for Indian Independence, um, but is usually referred to in uh, British and American textbooks as the Sepoy Mutiny, where soldiers who were essentially paid uh, by the East India Company to be their armed forces rebelled against the East India Company. At that point, the British government sought fit to take over uh, control of India from the British East India Company and consolidated then what is called the British Raj and uh, began to run the country from England um, uh, for the next 90 years, essentially. How was Britain able to sort of maintain this power from such a, a, a great distance? Was it manpower of people that they were sending over? They employed local elite classes, some combination of the above? So this is the question that's always befuddled um, Indian nationalist historians, was how so few British men, um, essentially less than you know 100,000 British men, were able to control a country of over 300 million people. Um, and... Uh, Part of the ways that the British are able to do this has to do with uh, three things, in my opinion. The, the first is um, economic and industrial superiority that they've accomplished because of the Industrial Revolution uh, very early on. It allows them a technological capacity to send troops over whenever they need to, uh, but also to run supply lines for their own um, military. Um, it, it gives them immense sort of military capacity um, and allows them the ability to control. The second thing, and this is the thing that's important, I think, from a um, historical uh, standpoint, is that India isn't one nation when and the British arrive. It's actually divided up into multiple smaller prince states, um, many of which are at war with each other. The British are able pretty successfully to pit um, smaller princes against one another to, to design treaties with larger states. Um, and the sort of political infighting allows uh, Britain to essentially um, consolidate its power much more easily than it would have to if it was doing it, it you know, this entirely on itself. And the third thing, and I think probably... Um, 
importantly for uh, uh, British um, uh, military rule is that they are able to siphon off a class of Indians um, uh, sort of from the middle layers to become their uh, essentially ambassadors for uh, British rule in India. So a class of Indians who are trying to think about industrialization, modernization, education, um, who see the advances that Europe has made and want similar things in India, uh, began to become supporters of uh, the British rule inside of India. So these three things help the British pretty substantially to maintain rule over a very large country um, for quite some time. Uh, And within the larger British Empire, what role did India play? So India is, of course, famously called the jewel in the British imperial crown. Um, and it has uh, three basic um, things that it provides for the British that make it important and strategically why they held onto it for so long and with as tight a grip as they did. Um, the first and most important thing that it provides is naval routes into the rest of Asia. So because... It, uh, Britain holds India. It's able to um, send its navy, its air force, and its troops all over um, the Indian Ocean. So everywhere from the southern tip of Africa all the way into uh, Southeast Asia, the British are able to do. The second thing it provides is human labor power. Um, labor, not only in the sense of Indians that were sent um, to work on plantations um, starting in the middle of the 19th century when Britain outlaws slavery, um, slaves began to be replaced by indentured Indian workers in British colonial possession. So most of the places in the Caribbean, Africa, and um, Southeast Asia, where you see large South Asian populations, they're the result of this indentured migration. But labor also in the sense of uh, military recruitment. So India provides one million soldiers for the British uh, during World War One, um, and two million soldiers during World War Two to fight in both the European theater, but also in the Middle East, um, as it's conducting, you know, uh, various campaigns. Famously, the British conquest of Mesopotamia and Iraq is done by Indian soldiers. Um, and the third thing it provides is massive amounts of economic resources for the British. So it's markets for their uh, industrial goods. Um, it's raw materials that they need to process. Um, and it allows Britain to essentially become a premier economic uh, power. In fact, the, uh, you know, its industrial capacity and success depends in large part on um, its control over the economic resources of India. So you touched a little bit on uh, India's importance during the world wars, but uh, can you talk a little bit more about the impact that the world wars had on Britain's imperial project at, with respect to India in particular? So um, World War One and World War Two both, um, Britain plays a pretty major role in, but it takes a pretty severe beating um, as a consequence of how devastating it is. So even though it comes out on top in uh, World War One. It's at some pretty major cost to uh, the strength of the empire. Um, it also proves to most Indians that no matter how loyal they are to the British crown, um, Britain is not going to take Indian demands for independence seriously. So it does a bunch of things both to the infrastructure of the British Empire um, in terms of weakening it in certain places, but it also, I think, uh, reinforces for many Indians what the costs will be for India if uh, Britain continues its kind of global imperial project. So India famously, um, uh, you know, many Indian nationalist politicians said was blood dry in order to finance Britain's campaigns in World War I. Um, during World War II, there are massive famines that happen all across the country, not because there's lack of agricultural production, but because food is literally 
literally taken from India and sent to England. So um, it both has a kind of economically devastating impact on India, but I think also, and it's important to point this out, um, Indian soldiers are returning from the war now with some military campaign and some confidence that they should be entitled to the same kind of benefits that British soldiers are getting when they come back from the war. And when that doesn't happen, it really does uh, strengthen the demands for Indian independence. Um, The last thing that I want to say, though, is that I think the untold story of the movement for India's independence is really the mutinies that are taking place by Indian soldiers during World War II. So famously, the Royal Indian Navy and the Royal Indian Air Force both go on mutiny in, um, you know, in important ways at the tail end of World War II. And it convinces England that it's no longer going to be able to hold on to India militarily because the costs of empire are at direct odds with what they need infrastructurally uh, to keep the imperial project going. And, of course, we know from history that Britain abandoned its empire pretty rapidly after World War II. And, you know, uh, they pulled out of India, they pulled out of the Middle East, uh, and in both cases with with pretty disastrous consequences. So um, was this an outgrowth of the war? Was this something that had been simmering and with the change in leadership from Churchill to Attlee in, in London that suddenly there was this will on the part of the colonizers to abandon the project? Or, or how did that come about? Well, I think that there are... Um I don't know why I keep coming back to the number three, but at least three parts of the story that are important to tell. Um, The first is that... Britain really does not have the capacity to hold on to chunks of its empire, and it's making choices about what it can hold and what it can't hold. Um, and so part of that decision-making calculus is being determined um, in Whitehall in as smart a way as they can make it, I think. Um, I don't believe for a second that you know Churchill was somehow more or less compassionate than anyone else. The British economy depended so greatly on uh, what India was able to do that even the most liberal-minded of uh, of the British politicians, I don't think, wanted to let India go. Um, the second thing, and of course, uh, the one that I think most people know, is that the campaign for independence inside of India was massive. Millions of people are out in the streets campaigning for uh, for freedom, for liberty, for the lack of colonial interference in um, politics. Gandhi's campaigns are immensely popular globally. Um, this makes it very difficult for the British to continue to keep a lid on national sentiment. And in some places, the sort of ruthless repression of the nationalist movement um, basically you know, uh, watered uh, the soil and more and more nationalists are springing out of it. Um, so during World War One, there are aerial campaigns against, you know, centers of nationalist agitation. Um, during World War Two, uh, similarly, you know, um, they're very worried that sections of India are going to hook up with Japan to, you know, make India a new sort of front in World War II. Um, and that's all happening because of nationalist agitation inside of India, trying to figure out new ways of, of trying to work this out. And then thirdly, um, you know, it seems to me um, that global politics was really beginning to change and Britain's sort of uh, position um, is now being eclipsed by new superpowers that are setting the terms of the debate uh, and how the game is going to be played. So, um, Britain has to abandon much of its Asia project, the Middle East and South Asia, because the Soviet influence in the region is growing massively. Um, And it settles for having basically a rearguard position in Africa as its kind of primary colonial possession through the 50s and 60s and, you know, 
etc. So um, these are all, I think, calculated decisions that are made because of international, national, and you know, regional politics that are changing after um, World War II and that redivision of the spoils of empire um, that happened now that the Soviet Union and the U.S. are basically determining how the map will look. So you kind of foreshadowed a little bit with your term, uh, redivision of the spoils, but... Um, so as part of the decolonization of South Asia, as we know, uh, India was partitioned. How did the actual independence process move forward and how was partition accepted as the inevitable outcome of it? Right. Um, this is a tougher story to tell uh, quickly, um, but suffice it to say, part of the British strategy in controlling India had been to suggest that uh, seats at different levels of um, power ought to be divided between Muslim and Hindu constituencies, um, convincing certain people that, you know, Hindus and Muslims were separate populations, constituencies with separate interests. Um, and actually, uh, you know, your election to certain posts depended on you cultivating a base of people within a, a certain religious identity versus in another religious identity. Um, this was a construction by the British of two separate you know, groups of people. Um, and as it's becoming clear that India is going to get its independence, I think, you know, basically come the early 40s, it seems more or less like the writing is on the wall. These constituencies are vying to see who is going to actually come out on top at independence. Um, Cynically, both conservative elements within um, the Hindu constituency and conservative elements within the Muslim constituency are riling up their forces to demand more of the division of um, what will happen after independence. Um, the inability of the nationalist movement and the Congress party in specific to offer solutions that I think spoke to ordinary Muslims and ordinary Hindus in meaningful ways meant that deals were cut between the British, the head of the Muslim League, um, and the heads of the Congress party to determine how India would be divided. Um, like I said earlier, right, um, there are still prince states that exist in India. Those prince states then had to decide which, uh, which side that they would go to. Mountbatten comes down and maps are drawn quite hastily. Um, and the whole thing is a pretty chaotic political blunder because of how fast the process of decolonization is going to go. Um, and it, it ends up meaning that um, Hindus who live on one side of the border and Muslims who live on the other side of the border are are trapped in what is, I think, um, still to date, one of the bloodiest and uh, uh, largest campaigns of ethnic cleansing of um, Hindus fleeing what then becomes Pakistan and Muslims fleeing what then uh, becomes India. The other part of this, which I think is worth mentioning, is that South Asia, or you know what the British Raj was, included not only India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, but also Sri Lanka, Burma, um, uh, bits of Nepal, right? So the decolonization and partition didn't all happen all at once. Different parts of it are, are carved out uh, to be different administrative regions. Um, and the legacy that we now have of essentially populations divided by arbitrary borders um, is a legacy of how the British conducted the decolonization campaign. So uh, moving towards wrapping up, um, you mentioned, of course, that the the British brought in their economic and, and industrial superiority, and this is one of the things that allowed them to dominate India. 
what are the, the the lasting impacts of that colonial legacy on India today? Obviously, India itself is is something of a regional economic power, yeah, um, which is something we don't necessarily think of when we think of Pakistan or Bangladesh, right? Um, so, what what are the what are the lingering effects from from those? Uh, colonial institutions that that we can still see? So many. Um, The political institutions that India has are inherited from the colonial apparatus. So um, the parliamentary system that it has, the courts that it has, um, the way that its own military is organized are all uh, inheritances from that episode of British rule. Um, Economically, the British like to claim that they did a lot for India. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the infrastructure that they built was not terribly helpful in terms of economic development. The Railroads didn't go where uh, would be helpful for economic growth. They were basically useful for transporting raw materials out of the country um, and finished goods into the country, not really for the economic development of uh, the people there. But what it did allow is for um, massive amounts of intellectual, personal, and financial relationships to be built um, as Indians began to migrate to different parts of the British Empire. So um, the British builds a limited um, educational system inside of India. It does mean that there is a class of Indians who are educated in English, who um, travel to England, who set up shop in England. Um, These global connections that are built you know, over the vast spread of the British Empire, allow India to access, um, you know, some major entrepreneurial and business talent, um, scientific talent as well, um, which helps India in the moments after independence to grow pretty substantially. Uh, Pakistan doesn't have the same sort of resources for two reasons. One, the schools that the British built weren't built in Pakistan in the same way that they were built in India. But two, um, at the moment of partition, what it becomes Pakistan inherits some of the worst agricultural land and none of the the limited industry that the British have built. So it starts the game economically behind uh, where India begins. Um, But at the same time, um, I think it's worth saying that uh, many of the social problems that exist within India today are direct legacies of British colonial rule. So the caste system for one thing, most people like to think of as a kind of age or time immemorial thing that existed in India, but it was actually quite fluid. Um, it that had definite sort of problems within it, but the, the hierarchization and the sort of codification of it into law really is something that the British put in uh, into play as they're trying to figure out how to administrate um, over the entire region. Um, they develop constituencies on the basis of caste uh, so that, you know, um, their debates about whether or not what are then called untouchables but are now called Dalits should be a separate constituency or not and carve out different populations um, in this way and understand caste. Uh, the, the modern ways that caste uh, uh, plays itself out in politics is a direct result of British meddling and the social organization of India. Um, and then what is also called communalism, or the conflict between Hindus and Muslims, continues today as a direct result of what is done by uh, the British. And the last thing to say is that the tragedy, which is um, the fact that certain peoples who were never part of India or Pakistan, who were forced to become part of India or Pakistan because that's how British parcels out the land, have been fighting for their independence since 1947, if not longer. So you think about Balochistan in Pakistan, um, the Northwest Frontier Provinces, um, Kashmir, Assam, uh, the Northeast in India. Um, these are all places that were forcibly annexed into the states um, that the British thought that they belonged to. Um, and uh, 
you know, one of the other legacies of colonialism has been its kind of incompleteness, uh, the incomplete finishing of the process of decolonization. Well, uh, Sneho Shingavi, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, this has been another episode of 15-Minute History. Uh, for a transcript of this episode and some supporting documentation, visit our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. We'll see you next time. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15-Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History, that's 1-5-Minute History, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.